You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, good evening. Uh, My name is Trey Hopkins. I am a church planning resident here at Mercy View, and uh, it's a little bit different this Sunday, but still honored to get to preach and share the Word of God with you because uh, the inclement weather forced to record this service from my living room today. Um, and so if you have your Bibles and you're uh, tuning in with us, I want to have you open those up to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 3 through 11. And I'm going to read that for us this evening. The Apostle Paul, writing in Philippians, says this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is the word of the Lord. This evening, we're going to be going into uh, the fourth or fifth week of a series that we've been in called Incarnate where we have, together as a church, been looking at various passages and seeing how the incarnation of Jesus, God becoming man, uh, impacts the world and our lives. How history has been turned on its head. How uh, this uh, part of God's plan of salvation has changed everything. And so... uh, uh, you might not know this, but my wife and I have two uh, young kids, and uh, our daughter, Eliora, who is about to turn four, and, and our son, Jansen, who just turned one in October. They're they're awesome kids. They're a lot of fun. Um, but something I've started to really notice since Jansen uh, started walking, since he started just kind of being all over the place and, and getting into different things and playing with different toys that he now has access to because he doesn't have to wait on someone to give it to him, is how my daughter has started to handle this newfound autonomy and freedom that her little brother has. It seems like every time that Jansen is out exploring on his own and he he comes maybe into her room or maybe into a section of the living room where we have some of their toys and he gets something, he'll maybe find a toy that she hasn't played with in weeks or months and, and he's playing with it, and he's having a good time, and then all of a sudden, she notices. And when she notices that he has that, 
She goes over to him. Oh, oh, Bubby, thank you so much for getting this. I'm going to play with this now. And she doesn't just do this with her toys. She does it with me and my wife. She'll be sitting on the couch. We'll be watching a movie together as a family. She will be glued in to the TV. And Jansen will come over to one of us and he'll get up in our lap. And then all of a sudden, we think she has no idea what's going on. But she'll realize that uh, while she's here glued to the TV, her brother is now in one of our laps. And now she wants to be in our laps. She didn't care before. She cares now. So the older that Jansen gets, we could easily start to flip the script, right? We could easily start to see him responding in the same way to his sister because what's happening in this moment, it isn't unique to my kids and it's not unique to Eliora. What's happening in this moment, in fact, is uh, something that's not uniquely a kid problem. It's an adult problem, too. We, as adults, are just a lot better at hiding it most of the time. See, jealousy, rivalry, what Paul in this text calls selfish ambition and some translations say vain conceit, they're ingrained in each of us since the fall. What drove Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit in the garden to begin with? It was this lie that God's holding out on you, that he doesn't want you to have everything that you need in life. And that if you would take Adam, if you would take Eve, this fruit, and you would try it and you would have it, you would be like God. Selfishness. Wanting what God had that they didn't. And conceit. Thinking that they could not just be like God, but that they could become God's. I mean, most of the advertising that you see uh, from the razors that you buy to the car that you drive to the bed that you sleep in, it's designed to elicit these kind of feelings. Like Ford is banking on the fact that somebody is going to show up to work on December the 29th. And they're going to pull into the office parking garage. And after Christmas, they're going to have this new car. And they're banking on the fact that while you were with your family, if you had maybe a game on or something that weekend, you're going to have seen their commercial. And you're going to think, wait a second, Karen got the new car? Now I have to have one. Now I have to have a new car. And visions of Matthew McConaughey shooting pool and driving a Lincoln will be playing in your head. You know that feeling that you get when the jerk who rode your bumper for the last five miles finally gets around you and he speeds off and he's down the road and about ten minutes later, you see those dreaded blue and red lights on the horizon and you slow down and you get over and as you're passing by, you realize that that guy is the one who got pulled over and you're just a little bit giddy. Like this dude got his. He got what was coming to him. And so you continue on down the road 10 miles over the speed limit. And Paul here in Philippians 2 
He is pressing in on these feelings, these sinful inclinations and motivations that each of us have. So I want you to look with me again at verses three and four. Here's what he says. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's a tall order. Do nothing, nothing in all of life from selfishness or conceit. Nothing. If your life is anything like mine, having this kind of shift in mindset is going to be an everyday, every hour kind of shift in thinking and desiring. Because selfish ambition and conceit are baked into the cake of of my life, at least. They're ingrained in me because I I know I have the sinful nature and, and, and I imagine that you feel that too. And so that's why advertisers know that they can pull on these things. And and that's why you relate to the feeling of, man, that guy got his. And the jerk's pulled over on the side of the road. Yet Paul is saying, we got to get this stuff out of us and away from us. Our whole mindset, our whole worldview has to change. I mean, seriously, even this week, if I think back to the way I interacted with folks at work and and the way in which my actions modeled this life that Paul has called us to, to live uh, as, as doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, I recognize how little that do nothing is actually a part of my life. On Tuesday, Brad asked me to switch weeks with him, and so I ended up preaching this week instead of next week. And then on Thursday, we realized, hey, you know what? Uh, The the text from Isaiah 9 probably should be preached next week. And so uh, we're going to switch text. And so um, on Friday, I started studying this text that we're in. And as I started reading Friday night and, and really digging into Philippians 2, 3 through 11, these first two verses and Paul's command and Paul's charge, his, his admonition to do nothing from selfish ambition and vain conceit, it hit me like a ton of bricks. This conviction from the Holy Spirit, because in the latter half of this week, I had been doing plenty out of both of those. A bit of passive aggressiveness with some folks who had got on my nerves at the office, a, a little bit of frustration and, and just kind of turning a cold shoulder to folks at, out of a sense of selfish ambition, of, of selfishness, out of a sense of, con- sense of conceit. And the Holy Spirit just kind of drop kicked me with this text. And I realized, like, I haven't been living in the way that the Lord would call me to. And so we see this text, and we see these two verses, and we say, Paul, how do we do this? How are we going to live our lives 
in such a way that we do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. That we are humble, that we do consider others as better than ourselves, that we are looking after the interests of others over our own. How do we do it? How do we go from being people who innately feel this pull and tug toward selfish ambition, toward conceit, to being the kind of people who, in humility, do count others as more significant than us? It's by having the mind of Christ. And Paul says in verse 5, have this mind so if you try to avoid selfishness, you try to avoid vain conceit, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb, you have been given a new mind. You've been transformed by the renewing of your mind. You've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. You are a new creation. And this evening, what I want us to see is how Paul is going to press in on the beauty of the incarnation and the glory of Christ's exaltation as the motivation for our humble obedience. And he does this by showing us two things. The first is he shows us the humble obedience of Jesus, of God incarnate. That Jesus, by taking on human flesh and suffering to the point of death, provides us a picture of humility and obedience that belongs to us if we are in him. And the second thing I want us to see is that we can have hopeful confidence in Jesus Christ as Lord because Jesus was the picture of perfect humility. He's now been given a name that is above every name. And because that is true, if we are in him, our lives are new as well. And so first I want us to look at verses 6 through 8 together. And I want us to see the humble obedience of God incarnate. And so speaking of Jesus, Paul says in verses 6 through 8, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now there is not a more striking act of humility than this. Brad's text from last week says perfectly the magnitude of the incarnation. That in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That God himself, in the person of Jesus, came into the world. And as this season reminds us, he did so as a baby. He was utterly helpless. He was totally 
dependent. They'd rely on the care of others. The one who by his power holds all things together was emptied and powerless. And this humility is the antipathy. It's the complete opposite of the kind of selfish ambition and conceit that Paul says we we shouldn't have in our lives. Selfish ambition looks at what someone else has and says not only, hey, I want that, but hey, in your face, I got what you wanted and more. And conceit, it's this feeling of superiority, of looking down on those who are other and thinking that you're better by virtue of just being you. Jesus didn't have to have selfish ambition. He had everything. And Paul exclaims that he was in the form of God. Yet he didn't grasp equality with God. And he's taking us back to that Genesis narrative where unlike Adam, who was made like God, just a little lower, yet he sought to be God, he sought to replace God, Jesus, as the eternal son from the father, was co-equal with God already from eternity past. He possessed in in, in himself all the fullness of God, all the majesty, all the splendor, yet all of the power of the creator, yet instead of grasping or clinging to that, he emptied himself. He came and lived among us. Theologian Ralph Martin in his commentary on this passage says over and against Adam's grasping for Godhood that the eternal Son of God however faced with a parallel temptation renounced what was his by right and could actually have become his by possession By the seizure of it. Equality with God. It was Jesus's. And he chose instead the way of obedient suffering as the pathway to his lordship. Not only did he put aside any claim or right to selfish ambition, He showed just how vain and pointless conceit on our part even is. We touched on it briefly earlier, but I think this definition of conceit in Matt Chandler's book, To Live is Christ, gets at the heart of the issue really well. So he says this. He says, conceit is about appearances. It's about saving face. Conceit is like pretentiousness, a a pride that connects our feelings to our image. So you compare yourself to others and become bitter when you think you don't measure up? Do you struggle with envy, jealousy, anger, or malice because someone else succeeded? Do you despise other people? Have you ever felt happy when somebody gets theirs? He says this, he says, we justify and mask our hatred by reasoning 
that such failures are what the other people deserve or they're good for their humility. And in so doing, we become the arbiter of who's worthy and who's not. You know, had every right to be defensive and save face when he was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton? Jesus. You know who would have been totally justified in defending his own honor and shaming those who falsely accused him of blasphemy? Jesus. You know who is the actual arbiter of who's worthy and who's not? It's Jesus. He deserved to be thought well of, yet he allowed himself to be maligned. He deserved respect, yet he was despised. He was worthy to sit in judgment, even while he was here incarnate, because he was sinless. Yet what do we see him do? He emptied himself, and he took the form of a servant. More than that, he was humbly obedient to the plan and the will of God the Father, even to the point of death. He had every right to set himself above every other person. Anybody else on the planet who had ever lived, yet he put that right aside in order to serve those who hated him by being obedient to God. Like, can we marvel at that this evening? Can we be amazed by that? Because that's what Paul wants us to do. This is not meant to serve as a mere example. Jesus was humble, you be humble. Jesus was selfless, you be selfless. Jesus was obedient, you be obedient. Those are all true. Those are all right statements. But Paul's not trying to draw our eyes to some example that we can follow because we're never going to really be able to follow that because he was perfect. Paul is not here drawing our eyes to the incarnation in order to say, follow Jesus' steps by taking the pattern of these verses as your example. He's trying to draw our eyes to the incarnation so that we'll look. He wants us to look at Jesus. He wants us to see more deeply than mere behavior modification. He wants us to see the incarnation and recognize that Christ's self-denial, his lowly service, his humble obedience, it has purchased our salvation. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that would have been a wildly offensive statement to anyone who heard it in the first century. And the fact that the Philippians are here and they believe it and they trust it and they know it, they need to be reminded of it again because it just goes and cuts against the grain of everything they would have thought. I think back to 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul says to the church that the cross is this stumbling block to the Jews and it's folly to the Gentiles. 
For the Jewish members of the church at Philippi, this was probably still some serious wrapping their head around this reality that they had to do. Because in the Old Testament, we see that anyone who died by being hung on a tree was considered cursed. They were considered to be outside the veil, outside the pale of the community. Yet the Savior of the world hung on a Roman cross? And then the rest of Philippi, they're going to be made up of people who are Roman citizens or have really strong ties to Roman citizenship. That's why this city exists. They would have shuddered to think of a crucifixion. And this is something that good Roman citizens didn't think of. That's something for barbarians and criminals. Yet the sinless Savior died that kind of death. It would take a different kind of humility than anything the world could offer to live this kind of life and die this kind of death. And what Paul knows is that gazing on this reality, pondering it, rolling it around in your mind is far better than some six steps to be a more humble person. Far better than a guidebook on how to live a less selfish and conceited life. We need to see the reminder and the example of the one who lived a life that was completely free of this. That never had to struggle against it in such a way that he failed. Put an end to selfish ambition and conceit today by gazing on the humble obedience of the God of the universe hanging on a tree for you and for me. It'll change you. Like I mentioned earlier, as as I shifted from Isaiah 9 to this passage on Friday, the Holy Spirit started convicting me of my own selfish ambition, of my own conceit. And what that does is that's moving me toward repentance, toward humbly recognizing and acknowledging my own sin before God, which I've done, but then also having to acknowledge it and recognize it and confess it before my fellow man. That's on the docket for tomorrow. What allows me to continue in humility today and tomorrow and the next day, it's what we see in verses 9 through 11. And so I want us to look there as we see the hopeful confidence that the humbled God in flesh is now the exalted Lord of all. And so look again at verse 9 with me. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. No, let's just pack it up and go home. Let's just be done. 
Jesus' obedience to the Father went from humiliation to exaltation, from shame to glory. Commentator, I quoted earlier, Martin, he says it like this, the honor which he refused to arrogate to himself is now conferred upon him by his Father's good pleasure. The one who became low has been lifted up. The one forced to bow under the weight of the cross and the weight of every sin He now stands in glory while every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth bows to him. The one crowned with thorns is now crowned with glory as Jesus Christ the Lord. And here's why the reality of Jesus's exaltation should give you great joy, great hope and great confidence today. It's because you are in Christ. Remember how Paul moved from do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit into this hymn of praise? He transitioned by saying, have this mind, have the mind of Christ among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, you have been through the work of, of the Holy Spirit, given the mind of Christ. And therefore, the humility of Christ is yours and the exaltation of Christ. The glory that he has received, we're going to get to share with him as well. Look at Romans eight eleven with me. It says this, If the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Christ in you, you in Christ, the spirit of God in you. And then a little further down in verses 28 through 30, Romans chapter 8, he says this. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified. What does it say? He also glorified. The resurrection was the proof that Jesus' humble obedience was accepted by God. And now the one. God who took on flesh, who was born to Mary all those years ago, who lived that perfect life, who instead of taking what was his by right, laid it down. Instead of exalting himself, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, now he has been glorified and he 
in his glorification has made it possible for what God before the foundation of the world had predestined in those whom he foreknew, whom those who are in Christ Jesus, that we would be made into the image of his son in order that he would be the firstborn among many brothers, that we would be made like him in his likeness. Free from the likeness of Adam, who in selfish ambition and conceit took for himself what belonged only to God. We've been made into the likeness of Jesus. And in humility, in recognition of our own need of him, we're going to be able to live lives that are humble, live lives that uh, take and value others as better than ourselves. And in our humility, just as in Christ's humility, we are going to get to one day share in the glory that is his now. And that should fill us with this hopeful confidence. Because God has known us and has predestined us and called us to be his own. He has justified us through the finished work of Jesus so that we can have hope that we will be glorified because of Jesus too. Because we are in him. And so Paul can say confidently, just a few verses before our passage in Philippians 1.6, he can say, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Humble obedience hopeful confidence. That's the glory of the incarnation. And that's why we celebrate this Advent season. Let me pray for us before we go.